Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. True Detective is back, and The Ringer's Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion are our guides as we navigate the twisting pathways of Season 3's plots, themes, and characters on The Flat Circle, a True Detective after show. Follow Jason and Chris as they chase down leads, explore each episode's cultural context, and discuss true crime cases that mirror the ones in the show. Join the guys live every Sunday night after True Detective on The Ringer's YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook pages. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the most interesting filmmakers in the world, and also my colleague and thoughtful friend, Chris Ryan. Chris, hello. Hey, man. I didn't, I didn't, didn't think you thought I was thoughtful. I think you're one of the most thoughtful guys around, and that's why I wanted you on this show. You know, you and I moved to Los Angeles right around the same time. Yeah. So I've asked you on this episode of this show for a very particular reason. We have a uh, nice conversation with Karin Kusama coming up. She directed a movie called Destroyer, which I think very quickly ascends the list of modern L.A. movies. And an L.A. movie is a very specific kind of thing. And so what I wanted to do is you and I share some top fives about our favorite L.A. movies since Chinatown. We're going to get to that very shortly. But first, I think I'd be remiss if you and I didn't talk just a little bit about what the hell is going on with the Oscars hosting. So yesterday, in keeping with the test balloon nature of this stuff, <laughs> we found out that the Oscars said they had no plans to go out and ask for a host of any kind. And today, this is Thursday we're recording we learned that the Oscars is, quote, scrambling to unite the Avengers, assemble the Avengers, as Stanley would say, to, I guess, sort of kind of host the Oscars. Mm-hmm. What the hell is going on with the Oscars hosting? What do you think they should do? Did the Academy learn something from the NBA trade deadline? <laughs> <laughs> Where all news is good news? Yeah. And you can just kind of dominate a news cycle? Because, like, would we really just be talking about Green Book? Right now? Or, I mean, I guess maybe we would, but, like, are the movies captivating and gripping enough to have this horse race debate starting now? Maybe, maybe not. But what is captivating is watching all of these celebrities get nominated and then get their tweets read. Yep. And then have this public debate about whether or not that's a good or bad idea. Um, it, it really does remind me of we have no intention of trading Anthony Davis. Truly. it's um. There's a lot of coded language in every one of these announcements. And the sourcing is fascinating to me. I wish somehow we could know who decided to say. You've got to become the Woj. Yeah. You you want me to become the Woj? Yeah. I think I'm a little bit too free with my takes. That's something I've come to understand. (laughs) Yeah, because Wojes are shrinking violent. That's true. That's a good point. He did actually pivot effectively from throwing thunderbolts about Kobe Bryant and LeBron James 10 years ago to becoming the information merchant. Yeah. And... There's a lot of uh, merchandising going on right now about ideas around the, the show. I'm so fascinated by it, mostly because I stand by this general observation that this is like the third most popular television show all year. So getting on this show and especially hosting this show, there is a part of it that despite the sort of reading the bad tweets and the the, the propensity for failure that comes with it is the biggest platform you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to sell something, Kevin Hart was trying to sell movies. That's why he wanted to get on that show. He wanted to become more famous. He's also trying to sell his brand and his comedy specials and everything else he does. The idea of no host, I've already mentioned, I think is a, just a really bad idea. That's going to lead to at least a dull show or a show that is driven by producers' bad ideas. We sure. saw that 30 years ago in 1989 when the show had no host. That was the last time that happened. Do you think that 12 people, 12 Avengers hosting is a good thing other aside from the synergy of Disney 
That's a really great question because the first thing I start thinking of is like, do you, you sure you want to put Robert Downey Jr. in front of <laughs> tens of millions of people with I a do. live mic? Fuck yeah. Yeah, that would be great. But like some weird stuff comes out of his mouth. It does. It does. You know, the, just because they're in the most popular movie franchise in the world doesn't make them, uh, you know, able to manage that situation. And also, I mean, that's the thing that I think is so crucial is like, we kind of saw this with the Globes where Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh had their moments, but they weren't like polished hosts. It wasn't Ellen DeGeneres. They didn't walk out and just say like, I know I can feel the room. I know the deal. The teleprompter is or isn't working. I can read which jokes are kind of going well or which aren't. I can point and say, hey, there you are. Like it was very much like, I've been rehearsing this. I'm an actor. I've been rehearsing this for weeks and now I'm going to go do it. And that's sort of not unlike what happened with Franco and Hathaway a couple of years back. The reason why they keep going to these stand-up comedians who have experience hosting late-night shows or in some are confident in emceeing a, an event in some way is because it is a live event. Is because it is an organic happening thing. You don't get a second take with a green screen. And I just think that uh, while it would be a spectacle to see the Avengers and maybe get people like you know like your your sister to watch or something, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that it would make for an entertaining show. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, is we think of Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Hemsworth as sort of famous people who are in these movies, but also, like, does this include Elizabeth Olsen and Anthony Mackie? Like, how many Avengers are yeah, we this, talking does here? Does Clark Gregg get a, <laughs> a look here? Uh, Do, can we get a little Kobe Smulders? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm, I'm quite certain that Brie Larson would be there, though. Because does, there, does Hugo Weaving sell. come in as Red Skull? <laughs> I think uh, maybe just Red Skull should host a solo. <laughs> He's the one who, who, who nominates Green Book. <laughs> Yeah, I'm reluctant to even dive into the Green Book conversation. Maybe we'll do that next week on the Oscar show with Amanda. Uh, I, we'll be keeping a close watch on this. Uh-huh. Uh, Chris, I, I appreciate you even just acknowledging that this is a thing that is ongoing in the world with me. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, I think it's fascinating. It's really interesting. Let's let's just pivot to, to Los Angeles. This is our city. Uh, it is our adopted city. Um, I've come to really love it, and I've come to understand movies personally in a different way living here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something you hear oftentimes. Angelina is a city full of transplants most of the movies throughout the 75, 95 year history of film are made here. Um, what do you, what makes an LA movie to you? And then how did you decide about what your top fives were? Well, this was a really thought provoking assignment to do this because I think that you could just do best movies that happen to be set in Los Angeles. You could do, you know, you could do your favorite movies set in Los Angeles, or you could do movies that say something specifically about Los Angeles, a Chinatown being the, I'm glad you set it from Chinatown on because Chinatown, obviously, I think in a lot of ways is what shaped our idea of Los Angeles uh, in, in cinema. But for me personally, I decided to take this in a more uh, biographical route, autobiographical route that movies that sort of documented my intellectual and emotional relationship to the city throughout my life rather than, oh, LA Confidential, this movie just like is about the underbelly of the glitz and glamour of the city. Yep. Um, Even so, though that's what you love. You live oh, in that I world. I mean, like we could sit here for 20 minutes just listing movies that yeah. are set in LA that we love. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you worked for 12 years as an editor at the Tatler. Um, <laughs> that's right. Reporting on celebrity <laughs> right. gossip around town, yeah. as I recall. Yeah. So. I have so many used uh, flashbulbs from my camera <laughs> when I used to surprise Lana Turner outside the Brown Derby. <laughs> 
Okay, so you chose a more specifically personal approach yeah. to this list. Yeah, and I found it, basically, I know we're doing a top five here, but what happened was uh, for four of these movies, they very much work in pairs. Oh, interesting. So we can we can break it up however you want, but I have a couple of films here, and, I, and these are, it, it, I, I actually purposely went away from, uh, if you don't mind me self-anthologizing, typical Chris Ryan core. So you will not find any Michael Mann movies wow. or Training Day or a lot of the movies I typically talk about. Not that these movies are necessarily devoid of gunfire and car chases, but these are just movies that at different points in my life defined how I felt about Los Angeles. I wonder if that means we'll have crossover or no crossover. Yeah, I'm interested. I gave you a little bit of a pregame, like I'm stepping off the man corner yeah. if you want to live on it. I just note. feel like there's a lot of content out there where I talk about Michael Mann. True indeed. And in fact, every time we record a rewatchables, you insist upon more. Yes. Um, it's an interesting <laughs> ongoing bit. I, I will say that um, I have like 500 honorable mentions here. This show is sort of by design provoking people to say like, you forgot about 310 to Yuma. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is cool. I, I totally acknowledge. I love that people think we're wrong about stuff or have missed something that is vital to this. But I had a very similar experience. This is a personal exercise. Some of this is about movies that I just purely love. Some of it is about getting a sense of what the city is like. Some of it is about just my personal interaction with the city. You know, I think at the top, I don't know if this is movies on your list, but I do want to just cite L.A. Plays Itself. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have L.A. Plays Itself? I don't, but okay. I, I, I figured that would be cheating. One of the glories of Los Angeles is its modernist residential architecture. But Hollywood movies have almost systematically denigrated this heritage by casting many of these houses as the residences of movie villains. So L.A. Plays Itself, for those of you who haven't seen it or are aware of it, is a documentary by Tom Anderson. It's like a three-and-a-half-hour montage-driven voiceover cut film. It just shows a series of visions of the city in cinema over the last hundred years. And it includes everything from, you know, Blade Runner to, uh, you know, Terminator 2. And it it just shows the city in a lot of different ways. I would encourage people, if they're just interested in the city of Los Angeles and they're interested in movie making and the idea of location, to just watch that movie. But I felt similarly, I didn't put it on my list because I was like, this is kind of like putting a greatest hits album on a on a best albums list. Yeah. Um, let's start at number five. Chris, what's your number five? Uh, this is the first movie that I remember thinking about Los Angeles through. So this is the first movie that I saw that made me think, okay, so what's LA? Like, is, this seems like a just a completely foreign planet. And it's uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But oh, yeah, okay. Good. I almost put this on. Uh, I haven't watched really watch Beverly Hills Cop. It's been a while. How's it aging? <laughs> it's got its, its... It still has moments that are apex Eddie Murphy. So you're just like, oh, God, this guy is so, so funny. But it, like a lot of these 80s action comedies, there's like a ton of action. And there's a ton of like, just like it's a cop movie that Eddie Murphy is in rather than like an Eddie Murphy movie about cops. And it's the action comedy genre is so funny because I think when people our age started making movies, we were trying to like, like you know, when you see Pineapple Express or you see the other guys and you see like that, try to capture that. It's so hard to get right. And partially it's because a lot of these movies were scripts lying around that they would then say, well, let's try to get Sly Stallone and let's try to get this person. And then they would finally be like, well, let's try this Eddie Murphy kid on it. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into this huge juggernaut. But this is so great because it's a Stranger in a Strange Land movie. It's Eddie Murphy coming from Detroit. 
uh, chasing a case of his murdered friend out to Los Angeles. And he arrives and is immediately thrown into the world of like the most stereotypical Beverly Hills world that you could think of. All these people have Lakers season tickets. They all have, you know, uh, Maserati, drop top Maseratis and um, plastic surgery. And there's some great, even even things like the the art dealer, uh, the, you know, and and his assi- and then also his assistant, which is famously played by uh, Bronson Pinchot, mm-hmm. uh, Serge Serge Serge. Serge. <laughs> I make it with a twist of lemon. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the first movie that I saw where I was like, "What the hell is Los Angeles?" Yeah, that's a really good one, and I think you make a a, a very uh, trenchant observation that it seems like that movie wasn't written for. Eddie oh Murphy. no, it was. There was a version of it that Sly Stallone wrote. Oh yeah. Well, as we know, Sly Stallone has written virtually every movie in Hollywood history. Yeah, so, but there's um, like a, I think his like the, the character's name was like Axel Coletti, <laughs> and like they had like a whole, you know, it was like him just gunning down people in L.A., re- avenging his his friend's death. Okay, I didn't know that. That's yeah. uh, that's a very fun movie. I haven't revisited it in a long time. I wish Eddie would make more movies that were not written for him. I feel like you hear a lot of stories about Denzel coming in, getting a script that isn't written for him. Yeah, and then he's like, I put the Denzel on it. Eddie Murphy just as a figure in general. Maybe the maybe a top five Eddie Murphy's is a is a good episode Jesus. to do down the road. Yeah. Um, what a complicated and interesting career. Remember when he almost hosted the Oscars? We got synergy coming left and right. I'm not so sure Eddie Murphy could could survive the uh, oh, no. the archaeology expedition. No, I wonder. Well, let's let's not. <laughs> let's say we did and not. Um, my number five is White Man Can't Jump. Yo, hey, hey, you set me up. Hey, look, 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 Raymond, Raymond. Now, I see you hustle, man. Hey, I ain't never used no goofy white motherfucker like that. Hey, who you calling a goofy white motherfucker? Hey, you, you goofy okay, white that's motherfucker. Cool, that's cool. Yes. Which, uh, is this on your list? No, but okay. it's a fucking awesome movie. This is a really good, it's a great movie. It's yeah. a movie I love. It's definitely in the pantheon of movies I've seen over a hundred times. Oh, easily. Um, it would be very low-key good L.A. movie because L.A. is a city full of hustlers, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a hustler movie. It's a sports movie. It's a basketball movie. It's a friendship movie. It's a it's sort of the green book of its time, mm-hmm. you might say. Uh, white guy and a black guy, what they learn from each other, what their differences are, how they show their life. In, the, in, that, in this instance, th- this movie does a really good job of showing, I think, two guys who are down and out and trying to figure out how to rise up. And the way that they live, the homes that they live in, the parts of town that they live in, where they play basketball, yep. is such a profoundly important part of the movie and I didn't realize it probably the first hundred times that I saw it. I wasn't thinking, I was thinking about Venice Beach and, you know, that opening scene when you see them playing on the court and the acapella singers and the, the idea of a of a space, but not really thinking about how it fit inside the city. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time with these guys in their cars, you know, that famous scene where they pull over on the side of the road and the bet between Woody and Wesley Snipes about whether or not Woody can dunk. Like, there is something so specifically emotional about how they travel together. Yeah. And... I, th- I, I, ne- I hadn't really thought about it as an L.A. movie until I was thinking of it in this context, but it does give you a little bit of a guided tour. Additionally, I feel like Rosie Perez's character, which is controversial, but cl- definitely one of my favorite parts of this movie. Sure. Um, I think Bill in the past has said that he, he doesn't like Rosie. He in has movie, said that, yes. Which is a, a blasphemous opinion. But Rosie also is this kind of aspirant person. You know, she wants to rise up and the way that she does it is kind of through show business through Jeopardy. Yes. You know, like there is, there are all these little stray observations. And of course, Ron Shelton, who wrote and directed the movie, the longtime Hollywood uh, gadfly knows a lot about the game and knows a lot about games. And so this is like a, this is my sports movie entrance. My favorite detail that you don't know until you live in Los Angeles is that there are all these apartment complexes and motels that have parking in the alley behind the building. Yeah. And when Billy and Gloria, when the gangsters finally catch up with them and they have to run out the back uh, and like jump down and like you, that's actually like, 
and all over Los Angeles, there are these either small little apartment complexes or motels where people typically like park in the alley behind the building or like there's like maybe underneath garage that has like, you know, half open, but you have to like go through the back. And it's like one of those things that when you watch it now after living here for a music, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, right. and in New York, you can't drive in the alleys. You know, there's right. no there's no throughway there. But in LA, you can drive through all yeah, kinds of Yeah, you can cut through alleys. all sorts of, yeah. yeah. That's a great one. Um, number four, what so do you got? this one kind of pairs with Beverly Hills Cop in the sense that it was also made in 1984. It was also released in 1984, and that is Repo Man. sick. I got to get her to the hospital, okay? So what? Take her there. I can't. I can't leave her car in this bad area. Look, I need some helpful soul to drive it for me, okay? She's pregnant. She, with twins, she could drop at any time, all right? Good. So Repo Man is my uh, doorway gateway drug to punk rock, and it was my gateway drug to independent film. I can't remember like how the hell this wound up in like my VCR, except for maybe I liked uh, Breakfast Club, Emilio and Estevez. so I was just like, I, I want to watch any movie with Emilio Estevez. Maybe it was even as late as Young Guns. I can't remember. Was Young Guns like eighty eight? It was definitely after Repo Man. So this was like a video store discovery. Yeah, this was like if you like like some guy at, at TLA Video in Philadelphia was like, you should check this out. And I think I was just starting to kind of like, I I was I definitely liked music, but I didn't know anything about it. And you don't necessarily walk out of Repo Man with a comprehensive understanding of Los Angeles punk rock, but you get the idea of the Southland as a neon wasteland and like all this weird, this feeling that Los Angeles, among other things, is like this home for stars and rich people and all this stuff and it's gorgeous, but it's also like the end of the road for a lot of people. And it's like, you know, the the the, the road stops at the Pacific Ocean and a lot of weirdos come out here to kind of like just stare out into the sunset a oh, lot. Yeah. And there's a lot of those characters in Repo Man. There's a lot of... Uh, Kind of like hustlers, grinders, con men. How would you describe the plot of Repo Man? Sure. Uh, loosely, there is a guy driving across the country with a car with a nuclear power, like nuclear power in the trunk. Yes. And he comes to Los Angeles and his car gets repossessed. I believe he gets repossessed by Harry Dean Stanton and Emilio Estevez, who play Repo Men, who are just basically sitting in their car, doing coke, drinking beer, philosophizing. And there's also a subplot about a group of punk rock bank robbers uh, led by Dick Rude, who is a kind of uh, fixture in the L.A. punk rock scene, and he shows up in a lot of Alex Alex Cox movies. Uh, And there's a lot of, like, really, like, out-there comedy. Like, all the food and drink in the movie is just, like, it has no-frills labels that say, like, food or drink you know, beer on it. Yeah. And it's like a real post-consumerism, post-capitalism satire on this this whole city. And I still, you know, it's it's just one of those movies where you're like, how the hell did you make this? Like, how did you even think to make this? Yeah, before we said stuff like this, Repo Man and Alex Cox's movies are a vibe. Yeah. You know, there is a complete, like, tonality shift yes. that is going on that if you're 14 and you see it, you're like, this isn't like other movies. Yeah. This, that something has changed here and it makes you kind of look more closely at why they've done those things, right? Yeah, and especially, it's crazy to imagine Repo Man and Beverly Hills Cop being made in the same year. Uh, not that they're, I mean, not that they both don't have like obvious like connections in terms of like this sort of outsider coming into this weird world, but it is uh, not not unlike White Men Can't Jump about people at the sort of bottom rungs of, of society in Los Angeles and also just introduces you to Black Flag 
and uh, like solo era Iggy Pop and the Germs and all this like LA punk rock that's incredible. So many of the movies and a bunch of the movies on my list now are also about people that are at the lower station in the city. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's all kind of like the. Which, which Guns N' Roses is a sweet child of mine, you know, getting off the bus yeah. at the beginning. And, and, oh, no, it's Welcome to the Jungle. Welcome yeah. to the Jungle, yeah, excuse yeah. me. Um, and Axel gets off the bus at the beginning of the movie and is, you know, the young star in the same way that the Alana Turner figure would get off the bus at the beginning of a movie and try to become a big star. Like, all of these movies, and this is this is kind of a, this 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 pick is kind of a nod to that, sort of. Yeah. Um, it's The Big Lebowski, yes. which is uh, a movie that you and I have talked about a lot. We did a Coen Brothers podcast. We did a rewatchables about The Big Lebowski. I don't want to talk about it too much, but since we set the parameters of this movie at since Chinatown, there's no way to do Humphrey Bogart. There's no way to do the gumshoe movies. There's no way to do Raymond Chandler in any way. But I did want to nod at a different side of the seedy underbelly of the people that are trying to rise up. And then the people who you believe have risen up, mm-hmm. you know, the actual, the titular Big yeah. Lebowski in this movie, you think is this very successful <laughs> guy living in this grand palatial estate with the young trophy wife. And in fact, he too is a fraud. Yeah. And there's a lot of ideas in the Big Lebowski. We could talk about it for three hours. And I picked it in part because I didn't have to talk about it too much. But one of the things that I like about it is it shows the illusory nature of the city. Yes. That every time you go to somebody's house, you have to be like, do they own this house or do they rent this house? Right. You and know? if they rent this house, is it entirely on credit? Yeah. yeah. Did their parents buy this house for them? Like, is that Maserati? Like, are they in hock for the Maserati? <laughs> like, what's going on here? Um, and so I, I just wanted to give a shout out to The Big Lebowski, which is a movie that I know you and I both love. Uh, number three. Speed. Open your doors! Open the doors! 50! Stay above 50! All right? Great. You're really going action. I yeah. love it. Um, really going cars, too. A lot of cars in your picks. Well, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, 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 do you mind if I also, also say what my number two is here to connect the two? Absolutely. Go so for it. it's speed and drive. Yeah, okay. I was afraid to pick drive for fear of being uh, pilloried by the by the critical establishment. Why? Do people not like drive? Well, this is a good conversation for us to have. I'm glad you're mentioning the movie. Why don't you do your, your riff on three and two? Speed is a movie that came out right when I got my driver's license. Mm-hmm. And not that I modeled my driving after Sandra Bullock. As you know, <laughs> I'm a pretty like relaxed driver, I think. Sandra Bullock is a marvelous driver. She is. Movie. She's quite good, yeah, actually. Yeah. I think weaving is kind of the key element to Los Angeles driving. Um, this movie starts to give you an idea of the expanse of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's just a collection of these little neighborhoods and mini towns connected by this massive set of freeways. And aside from the fact that it's just an astonishing action movie with an incredible conceit that's elevated by the fact that Bullock, Keanu, Hopper, and Jeff Daniels like just completely make this movie way better than it has any business being. I think it really does a lot to show... Uh, the the way and the sprawling nature of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and like how difficult it is to navigate in some ways. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to put too intellectual a point on a movie that's about a bus that can't go below 55, but like it's just, it shows you like it, if you were told you have to get out to LAX in this amount of time, it would be like really daunting. You know what I mean? Not, to say nothing of the fact that if you had Alan Ruck and a bunch of people on your bus and you couldn't drive s- slower than a certain speed. So there's that. I also really liked the fact that I, when I thought back about it, her the, the, the reason why she's on the bus in the first place is she's got the, all these tickets She's got all she's got all these moving violations. So she her driver's license has been suspended. So she's forced to take the bus. And uh, like you've been saying, like we've been talking about, it kind of bring that's a perfect place to bring to be- together a bunch of strata of society yeah. and a bunch of different kinds of characters. It's a great ensemble movie on that bus. So yeah, Speed was one of um, 
it's kind of a 12 angry men update in yeah, a way. Yeah, kind you know? of. Yeah. It is. Different perspectives. So that came out like right when I was uh, getting my driver's license and, you know, obviously has some incredible chase sequences. And then Drive came out when I moved here, uh, right, right before I moved here, but was like very much in the consciousness then. And definitely informed what I kind of hoped Los Angeles would be when I moved out here. All silk jackets and murder. Yeah, neon, a lot of chromatics, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, Johnny Jewel records, um, a lot of like driving around in very verdant parks or having picnics by the LA River with Carrie Mulligan. None of that stuff really happened. <laughs> I feel like I've met an Oscar Isaac character or two <laughs> as well. You know, that yeah. guy, there's something that sort of like, is this guy going to punch me or hug me? You know but, that feeling? You know, it's like, it's probably, because I, 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 I also purposely didn't put a Quentin Tarantino movie on here because I felt like I didn't either. Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs would have been so easy to go to. But those are not my Los Angeles though. Like I don't, I don't And that's identify. the thing is that I think that Drive was the first update of cool in LA for me. Like that was like, in the past, like my concept of what, what LA cool was, was like Eric Stoltz in the Valley yep. dealing heroin. And then... Drive was more like, no, it's it's Gosling driving around in a stolen Ford Fiesta with like the speed, the you know the restrictor plate taken off, and uh, I think that movie still goes hard. I don't know what people talk about. I think um, there has been a not a reversal of opinion, but the negative uh, feelings about it have risen to the surface, while the defenders have quieted, and I, I, you are here holding the sword. Is this because people don't like the movies that came after it by Refn? I, I think so. I think the kind of conversation around Nicholas winning Refn and the idea that he is pure style mm-hmm. and has very little else to say is kind of um, it's kind of taken over. I don't agree. I love Drive. Drive is like at number seven. Should we on do an list. Only God Forgives rewatchables? I, I, <laughs> I think we and I might have even done a podcast about that movie. I still love that movie too. Um, is that movie problematic now in 2019? Okay, yeah. good. All right. Uh... So you've done three and two. I'll do number three. I I didn't put Quentin Tarantino on this list. I would be insane to not put Paul Thomas Anderson on this list. My pick is Magnolia. And I think that it's because all of my movies all kind of have the same vibe, I think, which is like people living in slightly uncomfortable circumstances and they're kind of lonely. Yeah. And LA is a weird, it's a really weird town. It's like a really interesting place. I love it. It's definitely my favorite city I've ever lived in. But it has this odd feeling of closure around you where you're like, Everyone is doing something and I'm not doing it, but also I don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to leave my house. Yeah. And one of the things about Magnolia that I really love is it's tapestry. It's like a hundred characters in this movie, all from different walks of life, all equally kind of depressed and confused and unsure about their way of life, except for Phil Parma, the great Phil Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays a nurse, who's one of the truly decent characters yeah. in the history of movies. I love that performance so much. But I think that the thing about Magnolia is it feels like it's made by an Angelino. It feels like it's made by a person who was born here, lived here, grew up here, knew all the different stations of life in Los Angeles, which is rare. A lot of times the people that are making movies about the city are making them about Beverly Hills or they're making them about the valley or they're making them about the, the place where they live or where they spend time. Magnolia cuts across the entire city in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it cuts in deep into Hollywood. It cuts deep into the valley. It cuts onto the west side. It's on the east side. You know, there is... He, he weaves the tapestry. And when the movie was released, it was his PTA's third film. It was his first after Boogie Nights. And I think it was considered kind of a grand mess and not a, a movie that had a lot of flaws from somebody who we thought was going to be maybe the next Scorsese. Um, Magnolia is just a, an incredible movie that I think 20 years later deserves a little bit of reexamination. So that's my number three. Yeah, so my number one is, an, is a really nice partner movie with Magnolia. Shoot. It's Afternoon Delight. I really think I can help her. She's had a really difficult life. Who's this? This is Logan's new nanny. Well, careful. I am a nanny stealer. 
Wow. Yeah. So this is not number one, like, my favorite Los Angeles movie ever made. I did these chronologically. It's and a I, heavy flex. Yeah, and uh, me and Quentin Tarantino, both big fans of this movie. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is directed by Jill Soloway. It uh, came out in 2013 and stars uh, Catherine Hahn as a woman in a, not loveless, but I think calcifying marriage with Josh Radner. Uh, it's all my How I Met Your Mother heads. And um, as a lark one night, they go out to a strip club and um, they meet Juno Temple, as, who plays a stripper. And uh, she becomes sort of infatuated. Uh, Catherine Hahn becomes infatuated with Juno Temple. And they, she winds up moving in uh, with Catherine Hahn and her family and becoming the nanny uh, for their family. And uh, it's a very LA thing. Like I, I've, I've spent some time outside of Los Angeles in the last couple of months, and you know, you always get that charge when you're in New York or a big city, and you're kind of elbow to elbow with people, and you're like, "Hey, hey, I'm walking here," that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get touched a lot. Sure, and you also just like you overhear more conversations, and you're just kind of like trying to make it across three avenues without getting hit with like you know scabies water or whatever. <laughs> you know, like it, it's it's like a challenge. And in Los Angeles, generally, I think. Uh, the quality of life is pretty high. The weather's nice. You're kind of like, you don't have to worry about anybody coughing in your face while you're driving to and from work. But I think all that time in transit and in your nice house where you're kind of like walled off from stuff, it allows like crises to emerge. And you often will hear in Los Angeles, like you'll see somebody for the first time in three months and they'll be like, I just, I picked up this new obsession. Now I'm doing this. You know what I mean? Now I'm like, I'm into hiking, I'm into this juice, I'm into like th- like this kind of working out or I'm into this kind of like spiritual reawakening. It's a place of of this kind of like enormous changes as the la- at the last minute kind of behavior. And I like how there's this contrast here of uh living well but like empty inside and trying to fill that emptiness inside. And this movie, while incredibly funny and like really great bits between Catherine Hahn and her therapist, Jane Lynch. And it's just like a pretty delightful movie generally. Kind of gets at that. And in a lot of ways, you know, like Catherine Hahn is to contemporary Los Angeles what Elliot Gould was to like 70s Los Angeles. Incredible, incredible note. She's like the, the avatar of like upper middle class neurosis here. Yeah, the number one movie that is left off of the, this list due to the time constraints that I have magically put around it is <laughs> The Long Goodbye, which is obviously a, yeah. a great LA story and I think representative of the kind of the Elliot Gouldness you're describing. Yeah, and so I just think that her work over the last decade kind of like in a weird way and and not not to be creepy, but like you kind of see Catherine Hahn around where we live. Oh, no doubt. I've seen her many times. Yeah, so she's it's the like, grand dame of Silver <laughs> yeah, yeah, so in a weird way, she's like the actor actress that I just like cl- most closely associate with the time that I've lived in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite performance by her. And uh, I think it's a, a real uh, like uh, underrated movie. It's a great pick. It's it's really just a eye strafing uh, choice when you see it on social media. Um, I'll do two and one together. Uh, it's swingers and the player, and they represent two sides of the same coin. Yes. I'm obviously pretty obsessed with kind of class and aspira- aspirational people, and these two movies represent both sides. One is kind of a almost like a meta text about trying to figure out your life in L.A., which mm-hmm. is Swingers. John Favreau was an actor. People had known him maybe from Rudy, and he'd done some work on like some children's TV shows, some commercial work. He wrote and um, sort of guided, though he didn't direct Swingers. Uh, he would go on to become obviously a very successful director. Doug Liman directed this movie. Everybody knows it. It's, you know, it's similar to the thing about like, there are people who take up 
like hobbies to fill their time and 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 causes. Yeah. Weirdly, swing dancing at the time yeah. was relevant. And in, in swingers, it kind of defines a big part of the social lives of these kind of suave loser or wannabe actor types. Yeah, uh, and you know, they, there was just that Hollywood Reporter just did the piece on that book of photos from early 2000s. Yes. Uh, L.A., Hollywood's like nightlife with all these actors and actresses who were out and it like the big thing was that like social media killed their ability to just be themselves and go out. Absolutely. But this is back in a time when LA I think had like a different kind of nightlife. Totally. And and Favreau has that has a lot of that almost like Woody Allen-ish um neuroses mm-hmm. in his in his work but also he has this great counterpoint in Vince Vaughn's Trent and the two of them together make a kind of a buddy cop movie about just making it in LA, you know, the two of them kind of toggling back and forth and making each other better. Um, so I love swingers and I love the idea of like, I moved here and I'm trying to make it here. Yeah. I, I totally get that idea. And, uh, and then when you get there. And then when you get there, you get there and maybe you get to the top and maybe you're an executive <laughs> and then maybe you kill somebody by accident. Um, <laughs> this doesn't bode well for my life. <laughs> this is tough for us. Uh, so the player, of course, is Robert Altman's complete masterpiece from 1992. Uh, it is you know, based on a novel and the screenplay is also written by the great Michael Tolkien. If you're not familiar with Michael Tolkien, I would encourage you to seek out all of his work, his films and his novels. Um, and wrote is, Escape, uh, Escape at Denimora. Did he really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Maybe that will inspire me to finish Escape at Denimora. Yeah. Um, so Altman, to- total genius. He directed The Long Goodbye, which is the movie we just mentioned. And this is a movie about what happens when you think you're more important than you are. And that's just a clearly an idea that runs through the veins of so many people in this city. Yeah. Um, every meeting you take, every person you meet on the street is quite certain that they are the person that well, has you the can answers. create your own reality. Out totally. There. And, you know, I don't want to spoil any of the plot for anybody who hasn't seen the player. Um, it is in some ways a kind of classic noir murder mystery story. And in some ways a highly self-referential satire of the city and of Hollywood and of all these different things that I have always been so fascinated by um, includes a top three Tim Robbins performance in the lead. It's it's strewn with um, famous people mm-hmm. kind of just walking across yeah. the frame throughout the movie. A lot of the movie takes place on a Hollywood lot. So it's normal to just see Whoopi Goldberg come One in. One of the great opening seconds. sequences. Incredible tracking shot that w- walks us, Tim Robbins' character, through that, that lot. Um, the player is somehow both a cautionary tale and a middle finger at the same time. And I love it. It makes me think of the city all the time. Yeah. That's our top fives. We did it. We did it. Do you want to say a few honorable mentions? I'll I'll start going down my list. You want okay. To go, okay. I, it was hard to not put Mulholland Drive on this on this list. That was that's probably number six. Um, you know, to live and die in L.A., which is a, a really excellent William Friedkin uh, thriller, um, was clearly an inspiration for Destroyer for, for Karin Kusama's yeah. movie. And you know, we'll talk a little bit about L.A. when we get to that conversation. The other one that she and I talked about is her movie, The Invitation. I, my wife is going to be incredibly mad that I didn't put The Invitation on. I mean, it's, I, I said it's a fucking great movie. It's an awesome movie. I said to Carmen when we talked that it really it, it reminds me of a lot of my experiences living here. You know, you go to that dinner party where you don't know people, and then all of a sudden it feels like weird shit is happening, and you need to leave. Yeah, I've been at that party before. Um, the Limey, yeah, Soderbergh's movie. What are some some that you have on your list? Um, I well, I would just. People are probably going to be like, why don't you have nine cop movies on here? So I would just say, obviously, Collateral and Heat are the alpha and omega for me of Los Angeles movies in in lots of different ways. I would also shout out End of Watch. Oh, good. Which is uh, a really, really, really underrated David Ayer movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. Probably two of their best performances, I think, for those guys. Uh, And is um, a little gimmicky, a lot of like like handheld stuff, but it's it's really, really, really incredible uh, cop movie. Also, I love to, to Live and Die in L.A. 
Um, and yeah, it's just, there's so many, and I think it would be, we, we should, we should also mention LA Confidential, which we, we touched on earlier, but is, is a great kind of nineties version of, of fifties LA. Yeah. I, I think that's a great movie. Um, there's a, there's a few more. I mean, we, we didn't talk about either Menace to Society or Boys in the Hood. Right. I think those are movies that I watched constantly in the 90s yeah. um, that I honestly just didn't want to seem like I was trying to absorb someone else's experience because so many of my L.A. movies have become about what I see in the city and what I like about it. Um, you know, Friday? Uh, Friday is like a great L.A. movie. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Um, Jackie Brown. We talked about Tarantino. That Jackie Brown might be his most L.A. movie in many ways. Um, Nightcrawler? Yeah. Uh, I have um, one that's very, like, I, I think this is Bill Simmons' core, but has not really been talked about in a long time, which is uh, Sleep With Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen Sleep With Me. Well, it's uh, it's sort of famous because it features the Quentin Tarantino cameo where he does the, uh, the Top Gun monologue. But it's uh, another kind of swingers-type portrait of people kind of like j- young people living in Los Angeles. Uh, I also, just because, I don't even know if this movie still plays well, but I remember being very struck by its depiction of L.A., is Alpha Dog. Mm, uh, which is a, a, a Emil Hirsch and Ben Foster movie from a, a while back about a murder up in the Hollywood Hills that I thought was pretty cool contemporary tale. I think we'd be completely remiss if we didn't mention Clueless, which mm-hmm. is, I think, shows basically only one version of Los Angeles, sure. but a very funny and, and clever approach. Less Than Zero also similarly only shows one part of Los Angeles. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about Greenberg? Yeah. Chris, this has been fun. Thanks for doing this, man. My pleasure. Uh, We're going to go now to my conversation with Karn Kusama, but first we'll take a break to hear a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Sonos Beam. Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and newest addition to the easy-to-use Sonos home sound system. Sonos supports over 100 streaming services and airplay, so you can play everything you love and enjoy music and radio and TV and movies and podcasts and so much more. Beam fills the room with rich, brilliantly clear sound. Enjoy deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music, plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. Beam is easy to set up. It connects with your TV with just one cord, and it syncs with your existing remote. Plus, the Sonos app walks you through setup step by step. And with built-in Amazon Alexa, you can enjoy hands-free control of your music and more. Connect Sonos speakers over Wi-Fi and listen anywhere in the house. Create the ultimate entertainment center when you pair Beam with a sub and two Sonos Ones for truly immersive surround sound. I watch all my movies at home with the Sonos Beam and it makes the experience incredible. It surrounds you with intensity. Try Apocalypse now with the Sonos Beam. It will blow your mind. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Beam today. That's S-O-N-O-S dot com. I'm so delighted to be joined by Karin Kusama. Karin, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Karin, uh, Destroyer is a really fascinating movie, and it feels like it's really in keeping with your work. Mm, I'm really interested, you. when you have a movie like this, when does it really come into view for you? When do you say, like, I know what this is going to be? Is it right after you read the script? Is it you have to germinate um, on it? If it's a script that I'm interested in tackling and actually directing, I start having that feeling while I'm reading it. Um, it has to have... It has to pull me in somehow with that feeling of of presenting the question, do I want to see it? Do do I see it? That's kind of the um the test in a way. So even if I can't answer every question about how I see it, I ha- I have to be engaged with um the, the desire to interpret it. So your husband co-authored the screenplay. Yep. I'm I'm curious, Phil Hay is his yep. name. Um I'm curious when he's working on something with his writing partner. Yep. 
are you strategizing with him or does he go off into seclusion, <laughs> right, and then present something to you? Um, yes, into the prison of, of, <laughs> of their uh, creative man den. Um, <laughs> no, actually, in this case, I mean, that is how they often work. They really, I've seen scripts of theirs that I've offered thoughts about um, long after they've they've been in that kind of secluded period. But in the case of this project, we had made the invitation already together mm-hmm. and um, and had even formed our relationship because we had made Eon Flux together. And even though that was kind of a creatively difficult experience, um, it was such a good experience between us that that's what led to us reuniting as a team for the invitation. And that went so well that... Um, for Destroyer, they they were really writing it with me in mind. Mm-hmm. And so they brought me in at the outline phase and talked me through just how they saw the movie. And so I was able to offer a few thoughts about areas that I would probably want to amplify or explore further along with areas that I might have been a little bit less interested in exploring or that might feel more cursory to me. And so... With those thoughts in mind, they then started executing the outline into the script, um, and that's when they go into seclusion. Yeah. Um, but it was really nice to be weighing in to some degree um, a little bit earlier and not to change the direction of anything so much as to be aware of the direction or the shape that things were taking. Was that the first time that had been the case for you since your first film? Where I was a part of the process that early. Yeah. Um, Yeah, actually, probably. Because Eon Flux was a finished script when I read it. And, of course, it changed a lot. But I wasn't a part of that development. I wasn't a part of Jennifer's body's development. And I wasn't really a part of the Invitation's development. So, yeah, Destroyer is unusual in that respect. What was that like? Was it it something that you felt like you want to have more going forward? Did you like it more or was it just sort of this um, single incident? It's just another way to work. You know, if a script is great, part of the pleasure of it is that it doesn't feel like it needs a lot of work. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I'm reading a script and loving it, I'm not talking back to it all that much. I'm sort of under its spell. And and that's part of why, as a director, I'm really pretty vocal about the fact that writers are essential creative collaborators to a director if a director isn't writing their own work. And the notion that a director sort of takes over and then makes the movie from a script not written by them is absurd. Um, so I, I'm i pretty open about the fact that like great writing is the genesis mm-hmm. of great movies. So you know, I'm I'm open to being a part of the process in the in the early stages if I have anything to offer. Um, sometimes I don't. I'm always interested in how partners work together yep. professionally. Yeah. Um, Paul Dano and and Zoe Kazan. I talked to them about this. Mm-hmm. I talked to John Krasinski and Emily Blunt about this this year. What is it like when you have to give Phil a note? You know, is mm-hmm. it do you, do you can you are you operating in kind of a different plane of mm-hmm. your relationship mm-hmm. when that's happening? One thing that I think tempers all of it is that I'm giving Phil and Matt the note. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really I'm really talking to them as a team. They are they have been working together for over two decades. They are very, very, very close. And they are incredibly um like creatively aligned and also great sort of um like bounce boards for each other. And so when I give a note, it's I hope in the spirit of 
what is this thing we're all interested in together? And I try to be mindful of the fact that it's hard to take a lot of even constructive criticism, Mm -hmm. but it's essential that it be constructive. And so I'm really trying, um, I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but I'm always, there's no harm in trying to be better at giving a note that can also um, open up a door toward a strength that the collaborators you're working with already have. Mm -hmm. I feel like this movie very quickly entered the realm of like great LA movies and Mm. particularly I live in Echo Park. It's like a really, um, there's a really good, there's an interesting portrayal of what a lot of LA really looks like, especially on the East side, but all all, all over the city. Totally. And it's not in LA. I've seen in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. I'm curious like how you found the shape of the city and Uh where you went and how you guys scouted. What Uh what was that process like? Um, well, coincidentally, the film was originally titled Echo Park. Oh, and I didn't the, know that. Yeah. Um, and the – well, because they they had started talking about this project. Like a lot of our our sort of indie spec projects, um, they talk about ideas for years before they put pen to paper. And so um, they had always talked about a movie that, that starts with a body and has an unusual structure. And um, that body was meant to be face down in Echo Park Lake. And at the time, 10 years ago, when they were imagining that, Echo Park Lake was a little bit scuzzier. Yeah. Um, but it's just been so, like, beautifully— It's ridiculous It's, now. like, been so beautifully redone. And yeah. And you can get, like, a sweet scone and go, so you know— So bourgeois yeah, now, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's such a— um, you know, who wouldn't want to be there? Yeah, picturesque. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so— um, the combination of that happening along with as they were writing the actual script years later, you know, off of that jumping point um, for the location, um, a movie called Echo Park was released. And so they were like, okay, Echo Park is officially going away. And so that's where the L.A. River at, at Bowtie Project in Frogtown came up. But um, I think L.A. is such a it's just such a fascinating city and we don't see enough of what it really is and how it really operates in a lot of movies. I think so much of how we experience Los Angeles is its fantasy of itself um, as like a, as an entertainment nexus, which it is, but it's so much more than that. And so Bel Air and Beverly Hills and Hollywood is just really like really scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. And so we were always just like, we never want to see that in this movie. Frankly, we never want to see Santa Monica. We mm-hmm. never want to see the stuff we've kind of seen pretty mind, you know, mined pretty extensively and effectively in other movies and TV shows. And so for us, it really was about the East Side and the cultural density of Los Angeles, you know, the sense of um, or I guess I should say multicultural density of Los Angeles in that there are so many different communities like sort of abutting each other. Um, so it was always a priority that it be both set in L.A., shot in L.A., and truly in some respects legitimately about the L.A. that she was traveling in and through. Yeah, it seems credible that the characters in the movie would not never be in Bel Air. They would never be in Beverly Hills. There's no, no reason for them to be there. Right, right. And even the scuzz, scuzzy lawyer is in Palos Verdes, right. not, you know, um, not Santa Monica. Right, also accurate to a lot of my experiences with lawyers in L.A. They're in places <laughs> like that. Um, it's funny that you say that, too, because 
in the past, when people would ask me what it's like to live in Los Angeles, I would recommend the invitation. I would oh. say like, this is kind of not, not entirely my experience, but oh like the dinner party version of my social life is not, not there, not no cultish aspects necessarily, uh-huh. but the anxiety of kind of like, let's uh-huh. go to someone's house. I don't know whose house it is. Yeah. It's a little bit strange. I wonder do you sense you're sort of putting together mm. this like vision of Los Angeles in the work that you've been doing in the last few years? Um, that's really interesting. Um, I'm both happy to hear that and really sorry to hear that. <laughs> but um, but obviously the invitation was born out of a sense that I had short of a cult massacre um, had experienced a lot of uncomfortable moments like what you're bringing up um, in this city, which I think is very much. Um, often a city of transplants, and it's something that I've talked with a lot of people about, that it's a hard city to get to know people because it is truly so sprawling and overwhelming. That is not um, a cliche about the city. It's a truth. And um, you can have so much contact with people and faces, but not a lot of connection. And so I do think um, my vision of L.A. is about to some degree about the experience of loneliness mm-hmm. and how we attempt to answer that loneliness or bridge it or erase it or um, soothe it. And um, and yet it's also a city where I think so much is happening behind closed doors that we can't possibly know, which is true of every place in the world. But because you drive so much here, you just pass – sort of startling sights and scenes. And even if you wanted to intervene or even if you wanted to sort of stop and interrogate what you just saw, you can't because so frequently you're in the flow of traffic and you can't just like, you know, pull off of a busy boulevard or, you know. I feel um, desensitized to it. I'm like, I forget it 30 seconds later. If I see something on the road, I can't even remember it anymore. Well, and that that's part of what I was attempting to defuse, um, if that's possible, to sort of give vividness to something in this compressed thing we call a feature film so that, for instance, if we were to revisit that film, we could say, you know what? I I've had experiences where I pass that kind of scene or I encounter that kind of person, and the film memorializes that experience in some way, mm-hmm. you know? And and I think um, probably the next film I make with Phil and Matt that's part of, like, these L.A. movies we want to make. Um, Your trilogy. You're making yeah, a trilogy? Yeah, we're trying. Okay, um, that's cool. We'll, we'll also continue to sort of explore these— lonely ports you know um there's so many of them in this city yeah i want to talk about um nicole kidman's character erin mm-hmm. and her isolation and the way that you guys put that character together obviously you know nicole's been nominated for awards and mm-hmm. has been recognized for her performance it's an amazing performance she transforms yep. in the movie um i'm curious what was it about erin that spoke to her and then how did you guys kind of work together uh-huh. before you started shooting to say this is who this person is going to be. And this is because we spend a lot of the movie just with her, oh, you know, yeah. in those isolated, in the car, sitting alone, figuring out what to do, yeah. you know. So how did, what were those conversations like? You know, I think for her, what drew her to the role, well, really caught me off guard. Off guard. I mean, in, in retrospect, when we've talked about the role now together, you know, sort of past the process of having made the film together, um, what she talks about that, that really 
excited her was how emotionally shut down the character was because she often plays people who, while they might be calculating or might be um, even cold, their emotional life is still present. Whereas Aaron is someone who really has to actually work to understand what she's feeling or that she is feeling. And and Nicole finds that fascinating about her because um, she's used to playing people who – or she's drawn to people who – who can eventually make some sense of, out of what they feel. And, and there is something about Aaron that is so disconnected even from that kind of introspection or self-knowledge or self-awareness that, um, that she found herself curiously empathizing with but mm-hmm. also quite sort of um, puzzled by and wanting to get to know better. You know, I think um, Nicole is interested by people who – who and I mean this sounds so perhaps obvious, but she's really interested in people who are really different from her. Mm-hmm. And so, how would you describe her? I would describe her as a pretty open, emotional channel, curious, engaged, and there's some truth to the f- observation that it would appear that there is almost no one more different from Nicole than this character, Erin mm-hmm. Bell. <laughs> That's actually quite true. And she had said to me early in the process, you know, I think we'll probably get to know each other after this is all over. And I was like, oh, that's a funny thing. And then as I started working with her, I was like, oh, I see what you're saying because she was immersing herself in the character to a degree that I was sort of not getting open Nicole Kidman. The full I, depths of her personality. No, I was getting a version of Aaron mm-hmm. and um, and really had to sort of Except that there was a point at which, when deep in shooting, that I was negotiating with the character, really, in terms of directing her, because she was um, very committed to staying with that, um, I want to say, like, frequency, because Mm -hmm. the frequency was so demanding for her. You know, like, there was so much tension and, like, hunching and rage, um, she found it kind of like hard to disconnect from and then like let go of. So she was like, you know what? I'll just hang on to this, get to the end, and then like, you know, take a sort of metaphorical shower that lasts, you know, like <laughs> a month and a half. But I'm going to cleanse myself of the character when it's all done. I I don't have the energy to swing back and forth between myself and Aaron. I know there's been a lot of conversation around the movie and the concept of a female antihero and what mm-hmm. that means relative to a male antihero. Mm-hmm. The characters that she most reminded me of were Bogart characters. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like in A Lonely Place or mm-hmm. in some of the detective movies yep. in that, she, you know, there's sort of like a native wound but it's a little bit in, in trying to, she's trying to stymie it in yeah. some way, but she's also trying to get to the bottom of a case. She's kind of ruthless, even yeah. though you're, you're on the journey with her. Yeah. Did you guys talk about other movies? Did you talk about other concepts that you yeah. were thinking of? I mean, we did. I, I said, I talked a lot about like my relationship to Taxi Driver. Mm. And I said, you know, when I revisit that film, I'm struck by a couple of things that it is, that it is grimy and kind of grueling at moments, but also in my opinion, just one of the most thrillingly entertainment entertaining films, you know, ever made. And I have to ask why, because a lot of what I'm watching isn't that entertaining on the surface. And that's one factor. But the other factor is the experience of watching Travis Bickle 
And understanding that though the movie develops on a plot level towards something that we would call a genre narrative, it's really a character study and it's very much a portrait of mental illness. And for me, that evolving relationship to the character is what I was hoping to achieve with Aaron Bell, a sense that you watch her and then you start to sort of get more access to her um, and that in getting the access, we're starting to understand the brokenness. And so we talked a lot about, like, what are the points where we really f- get to the heart of the matter in that character a little m- with a little more um, openness? And then where where does she remain closed? And, you know, it's funny. For some reason, I'm thinking about the scene with DeFranco, that lawyer in Palos Verdes. Mm-hmm. It's like even at her most enraged, she's hiding there's something essential about her rage when she lashes out. And on a movie level, I think there's probably something kind of cathartic about it. But we're still not understanding her. And I think there are areas of the film, though, where we are allowed to understand her better. And that was part of the sort of um, the shape of the movie is getting you closer to to that experience of understanding her. Yeah, and you have this kind of Russian doll reveal where each section that you peel away, you show uh-huh. kind of why she feels the way she does. But yeah. for a long period of the time, you don't really mm-hmm. understand what has turned her into this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but wouldn't you say that's also true of a lot of anti-hero cop movies? Yes and no. I think audiences, I'll, I'll, I'll generalize it. Uh-huh. It's an interesting question mm-hmm. because... Audiences, when it's a masculine figure, often think that that character is never going to ultimately express specifically how they're feeling. With a female character, there's this expectation that there will be this cathartic explanation. Now, that's not necessarily what happens in your movie. It's more like because of the time structure, you have this great way of showing us kind of what the series of events were. Right. Which is very cleverly done. But it it, (laughs) it wasn't— it was interesting to me the way that you you put it all together. But that generalization that you bring up is, to me, the very thing I'm sort of hoping— the audience that is engaging with the movie will start to interrogate with themselves. Yeah. Why do we expect or allow men to have no emotional life on screen mm-hmm. when in fact there's actually something both one note and untruthful about it? Mm-hmm. So not just like why do men get to play those characters and then still be called complicated and interesting? And then when women play those kind of characters, do we find them just a turnoff? I guess I'm trying to get the audience closer to asking themselves about why they go to the movies in the first place and what they're expecting out of them and like what, you know, what are the things we need out of movies? I guess I'm trying to figure that out. I like also just the way that you roll reversal with Scoot McNary's character as well, where he's a little bit more open-hearted and yeah. he's trying to understand oh and he's trying dude, to be there, you that know? Guy, that guy is playing a character who is just really like, he's truly struggling with that, you know, situation that he's in. Yeah. And, um, and he, it's Scoot, so he's so good at doing it. I'm, I'm curious, your career is obviously fascinating for many reasons and i feel like you're I, I, tell me if i'm wrong but i feel Loaded like statement. well you're you're it seems like you're in a great place you've you're made, uh-huh. you've made a few great films in a row now mm-hmm. like you are back on the track of making films regularly but uh-huh. <laughs> specifically the idea of a couple of like cliche aspects of hollywood have been uh-huh. affixed to your resume your filmography yeah. Yeah. the sundance effect yeah. and you know like a sophomore dr- slump sophomore slump director jail like yeah, yeah. all these like phrases that we hear people talking about yeah which are some are bullshitty and some of them are true. Right. 
I don't necessarily want to know what that was like to be in director jail or whatever. I'm more <laughs> curious what it's like to be a person who gets cited as an example of a thing like that, uh-huh. you know? Do you feel outside yourself when you see yourself written about in in, in those ways? Well, I'm, I'm curious about the desire for narratives like that in the first t- place. I mm-hmm. mean, I think the notion of comeback is kind of interesting to me because I'm just like, I've always been here. I've always been working. I've always been for myself pushing things along. Mm-hmm. So I don't see myself coming back. I just see the attention coming back. But I might be another form of a cliche by even just saying this, but like having sort of tremendous, almost cliched success at the beginning and tremendous, almost cliched failure second time around. And then shades of gray after that and something back to what I think is a kind of success, which for me is just simply personal and creative. Mm -hmm. I was... I got myself into a situation both creatively and financially after doing a lot of TV where I could make a small feature on my terms, get final cut, make another feature on my terms, smallish budget, but still more than the invitation and get final cut. And for me, that works. I mean, like I'm just feeling like if there's a cliche I'm willing to ascribe to, it's that I'm a director who needs a tremendous amount of creative authority. Mm-hmm. and. And that doesn't make me better or worse. It just, it's how I work best. And that may not even be a commentary on the movies themselves. Um, I, you know, I do think I make better movies with more creative control afforded me. Um, I'm sure the public or studios can disagree with me about that. Well, I feel like the last, I wouldn't ask you that question if I didn't feel like you felt like you were in kind of a a good stage of your career. Obviously, the last two films in particular. Uh Uh-huh. Critics love, and I think they're for people who've seen them. They just really like them. They're yeah, yeah. really intrigued by them. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess what it is is that I feel like when I get to make my own movies, I find the audience that receives them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that I just think it gets really messy when you can't make work that you can totally stand behind. And and the problem with the the machinery around making movies is that even making a movie like Jennifer's Body, which was largely my movie and and very much a movie I was happy with, I couldn't quite stand behind it because the way it was being presented to the world was so different from the movie. It was marketed oddly. Yeah, it's so different from the movie. And so I was a little bit like, how do I participate in the machine of marketing this movie when I don't agree with how they are framing the movie itself? It it was all just so like... um, you know, it's like being a candidate in a political race where you don't believe in the central tenets of the party. Do you know what I mean? That is like every politician, but sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 that's right. But that to just kind of give you a sense of its, um, I don't know, just how, how kind of normal or average it is to have this experience. It's very difficult to get to the place where I am now mm-hmm. in which I'm saying I realize truly how I work best and I need a tremendous amount of creative respect and freedom. This shouldn't be rocket science, but it is for me personally to have gotten here, to have figured this out for myself, and to understand that I'm a much better uh, collaborator when I have that control. Um, Maybe that makes me insane. I realized just as I said that, I was like, wow, that sounds like what a dictator or a tyrant would say, but I am neither of those things. Well, you know, (laughs) not to draw too clear a comparison, but it's a little bit of the paradoxical Aaron Bell 
it, with a male, you, you know, we think of directors as these sort of tyrants, you know, the, yes. the, the cliche vision of the John Ford figure, you yeah. know, pointing and saying, do this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as a woman, I'm sure that there's some, much more complexity in the way that you're perceived in the industry, presumably. So that there makes <laughs> that makes sense. The other, the other kind of, this is a less known phrase, but in our offices when we're talking about movies, I feel like the five-year bounce is a thing and Jennifer's body has really benefited from kind of the five-year oh. bounce where like people who I have discovered it one. now— they love that movie oh, now. Okay, good. Good. Does that is that seem accurate to you? I feel like the movie has a real fandom. Oh yeah, no, totally. It does. It's really found its um it's kind of found its audience late and has been reevaluated and reassessed and that is something that happens to movies, that happens to books, that happens to culture. Sometimes you need time to hear things or experience things or see things in a in a more pure way. And my sense is, is that minus all of the machine around Jennifer's body, people are actually experiencing the movie for its meaning mm-hmm. as opposed to the meaning of its framing, which was faulty framing. Right. You mentioned um, that you did that work in television. Uh-huh. I'm curious kind of what the balance is for you now. Is your hope that you'll continue on the path of making these features with this modicum uh-huh. of control that you're describing? Or could you see yourself doing something more television episodic in the um, future? Well, I mean, I've done a lot of episodic and I really enjoy it. I really enjoy like um, being on a team where I am sort of relieved of the duties of high, highest up on the totem pole. There's actually something, I mean, there's something kind of nice about just speaking the language of a show. Um, I'm trying to find that pilot that could, like, actually be something where I establish the language of the show. Yeah. Um, and and that'll come. I mean, um, I, my agent disagrees with me. I don't really, like, um, I don't have a snobbery about episodic versus pilots. Like, I just think if you do good work, you do good work. And... Every opportunity to do good work is also an opportunity to have it be reinterpreted or reframed or reconceived in a way that you say, ah, you know, chalk one up to life ultimately being chaos and out of your control. Right. That's part of what I've come to understand about this business is that, like, try as I might to control every element, I can't. And so for me, when I really look at the reality of what I want out of this business, I want to be making movies with as much creative control as I can. That means in today's world where theatrical features are increasingly hard to get made and financed, I have to be making those movies most likely for the lowest possible number, which means I get the lowest possible number as a salary. So things like TV are a way for me to like keep doing the movies I want to do. And I'm very thankful for that bargain. Like I don't think, um, I don't know, like I don't like... um. I don't like being snobby about the stuff that actually allows me to do the work that I love, um, if yeah, that makes sense. it does. I mean, one of my favorite things to do, and maybe this is because I watch too many things, but <laughs> is to look at an episode of Halt and Catch Fire or mm. Billions, two shows that I like, mm. and to see your name on it, mm-hmm. and then to think about what this means sort of for your career, what uh-huh. this means for the show, what are right. you bringing to it? Try to right. understand it on on that level as well. Yeah. Um, do you find that you can still assert some of your visual cues or your ideas? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, those are also shows with, you know, showrunners who are really open to hearing, hearing from the director. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are shows that aren't as um, flexible, but um, those aren't the right shows for me. You know, I like being able to say, I've thought of something. Can we explore this idea? I, 
like I also like working on shows where frankly the scripts are really good to begin with. Mm-hmm. So it's not about like, oh, how do I how do I make this terrible script work? It's more about like how do I best serve this really good script? <laughs> and so again, as somebody who loves writers and respects screenwriters and what they do, I'm very lucky to have worked on so many shows with so many talented writers, you know, so I'm able to just um sort of see the job differently and see the job as like, how can I use my skills to best achieve or execute or bring to life this story and these characters who have been established often long before I've come to the town. And um, I have to respect that. You used the word theatrical earlier. Uh I'm interested specifically at this stage of your career, what your feeling is about making a film for a streaming platform versus you know, making a film that is to be released in theaters like Destroyer is. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm such a purist in this regard. I, um, For me, a film is something you see in a movie theater on a big screen, ideally with a killer up-to-date sound system. Um, it is how I was introduced to the art form. And while I don't doubt that I've had really amazing movie experiences and memories that have been formed from watching a tattered VHS tape or DVD or Blu-ray or streaming experience, the memories that have actually like changed my cellular makeup all started with the big screen. And so like, I liken it to visiting Notre Dame for the first time. You know, you walk in there and you say, well, fuck if they didn't figure out how to make you believe in God. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. And they said, look, if we're going to make you work for it, if it's going to take 227 years to build this place and people are going to die getting here and families are going to see their sons buried in rubble making this damn cathedral, better be good. And you walk in there and you say, you know, as an atheist, I see the point. And so for me, I, I just feel like There are movies that just simply cannot live anywhere else but the big screen, and they were conceived that way. And I'm not saying that's the only way I've made my movies to be seen, and I certainly accept it if somebody says, oh, I watched your movie on Netflix. I mean, so many people watched The Invitation on Netflix. I have to accept that that's one way that it happens, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity. But that being said, the people who say, oh, my God, when I went to the Arclight and saw The Invitation for the first time— it took over my kind of headspace and it got in my craw. And that's what I look for from a movie. And so your question brings up like literally day-to-day questions for me about what I want to do next because there's so many opportunities in streaming, but they don't often speak to me simply because the delivery system feels innately flawed. And Maybe that makes me really a dinosaur. Like, maybe that makes me, like, somebody who is not going to be able to adapt very well. I don't know. Well, I think probably resolute and ethical is kind of an interesting way to frame it. You know, you have a set of belief systems. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the building of the cathedral, literally. Right, right, right. <laughs> And you, you think that this is what movies are. I mean, I, I, I love to ask filmmakers about that because everybody is obviously very different. And I think that there, I suspect for someone like you who has now a lot of experience and a lot of different kinds of experiences working with studios, yep. indies, et cetera, yep. that opportunity must also be appealing to say, make this movie and instantaneously 20 million people can see it as soon as it's ready to go. Yes. Although it's so funny, the control freak in me that really um, 
Again, it's like this control freak that can't have control ever, really, when you think about it. I mean, the irony of making theatrical features that you see in a movie theater is you don't set the volume level, you don't change the bulb when it should get changed, you don't you're not in control of the 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 viewing delivery system almost ever. I still somehow it's the big screen that somehow still seems like a more ideal way to watch a movie. And so even though I might have access to 20 million people if I were to make a movie with Netflix and I don't discount the opportunity, somehow that doesn't like land for me as quickly. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it was really instructive to make a movie like The Invitation, which Draft House released in 15 cities. They did a beautiful job with it. A lot of people saw it in the movie theater. And tons more saw it once it was on Netflix. So um, we recommended it on a podcast like six months ago and just heard from a lot of people who liked watching it there. It's one of those things where if the goal is to get people to see things, it creates this complex conversation around what ultimately do you want? Do you want people to see your films? Yes. Or do you want to are you more concerned with the way you think it should be? It's 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 no, interesting. It's, it's a it's a really I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Ethan Hawke's church and First Reformed versus Cedric the Entertainer's church. Yes. You know, like— Well, everyone's um, doomed in that movie, so well, hopefully— <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but there's a sense that, like, you know, on the side of faith, there is no villain there. It's just a question of your delivery system. Um, obviously, there are villains in that movie, but they're just the people who actually just deform faith and wreck the environment. But— Um, And we have plenty of those in real life to use as examples. But, I mean, I think for me, there are certain projects where I get why they would go just directly to a streaming outlet. But I'm at an interesting moment where, as I've made now my last couple of movies, I think what people see in me, for anyone who engages with my work in a positive way, is that I make movies with the big screen in mind. And for that reason, I'm in a moment where, because I have a rare opportunity to continue to try and do that, I'm just gonna, I'm just like all my chips all in. Like I'm just going to keep making theatrical features as long as they exist and as long as they will have me. Do you know what I mean? I do. Can you tell me anything about your next cathedral? <laughs> um, it feels kind of like an epic. Um, it's about making movies, and it's about. Truly an L.A. experience. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, it's like um, about the act of making something. So if Andre Rublev were um, not quite so devotional and maybe a little more fun, um, it's about the act of having to, you know, make a dream and put it up on screen. The last filmmaker who was here referenced Tarkovsky was Paul Schrader and you just referenced First Reform. So there's some nice circular <laughs> logic. That's really funny. Um, I love it. <laughs> Karen, I end every episode by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they've seen. Mm. So what is the last great thing you've seen? Um, okay. It's so funny because I feel like what that means is I keep giving props to the exact same thing that is the last great thing I've seen. That's okay. Just um, be honest. Mandy. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I loved Mandy. I loved Mandy. I, I I dragged my husband to see it on the big screen just a couple weeks ago because it was here in L.A. And that is a big screen movie. Um, it's a big screen movie. And that's the thing. It's like I really respond to those movies that get me out of the house and that I put in my calendar and they stay in my calendar. And I like live by the law of going to the movie theater to see. And so 
something about that movie, I was like, oh, no, I need to see it again on the big screen. And so making that effort and introducing my husband to it and saying, you know, this is a version of feminism that I can get behind in a kind of macho exploitation flick. That's that. There's something fun about that to me. I love that answer. Karen, thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Thanks again to Karin Kusama, and please tune into this feed next week on Tuesday. Amanda and I will have a new Oscar show. We'll be breaking down this host, Michigas, and we'll be talking about Kevin Hardigan, I'm sure, no doubt, but hopefully some of the great things that we'll look forward to in the nominations as well. See you then. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of The Big Picture, which has been brought to you by Sonos. Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and newest addition to the easy-to-use Sonos home sound system. I have been using my Sonos Beam endlessly as I watch movies every day, preparing for Oscar season. I've got screener upon screener, and I'm delighted to have the Sonos Beam surrounding me as I listen and watch all of these movies. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Beam today.